please be seated. So we're looking at the, the subject of repentance at the moment. Not exactly the cheeriest of topics for Advent, perhaps, but we've actually seen that repentance is about the good news, about the good news that if we repent, that is, turn away from ourselves and turn towards Christ, then he saves us entirely for free, irrespective of who we are or what we've done or where we've been. None of it matters. It is all covered by the blood of the Lamb. That's why they call this thing grace. And last week, we heard that the good news of the good news is that even our desire to do that turning is a function of God, a function of grace. Romans 2.4 says, do you not know, you guys, God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. There's something attractive about Jesus that as he is manifest amongst us, makes us turn to him and and desire salvation from him. That's the good news of the good news. Today we start to look at the good news of the good news of the good news, and that is that God wants to use you to do that leading. God wants you to be his evangelists, wants you to lead others to turn away from the way they are living now and towards Christ. Let's look at Mark chapter 1 together. Mark 1 verse 16. The the encouraging rustle of scripture, which is my favorite sound. Thank you, Connie. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. The fishermen fish. That is what they do. And uh, often I think it is tempting for us to identify with things that we don't do. Uh, News just in. Being at the golf club is not the same thing as being a golfer. Wearing yoga pants does not actually make you fit. Trousers are not the same thing as exercise. I'm sorry to break it to you. says on my... Facebook profile that I like to run. Every now and then someone says, oh, where do you run? And I have to admit, London, because that's the last place where I did it. (laughs) I was a runner, not really a runner anymore, because, of course, runners run. These fishermen fish. It's what they do. They don't just live in a fishing village. That's not enough. They don't just read fishing magazines. They don't go down the pub in the evening and only sing about fish. It's not their location, the fact that they live in a place where fishing is done that makes them fishermen. It's not their knowledge about how fishermen go out and fish that makes them fishermen. None of that characterizes them. Rather, what they do characterizes them. It's the fact that they go out fishing that enables them to be described as fishermen. They were casting a net, it says here, for they were fishermen. Verse 19 says, going on a little farther, he, this is Jesus, saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. Not that you're always active, of course. You're not always actually active fishing. Sometimes you mend, which is what they're doing here. But if that's all they did, If all they ever did was sit around 
mending stuff and, and talking about stuff and planning stuff and hypothesizing. That would not make them fishermen any more than I'm a runner. Fishermen fish. Note closely, it's their boat. Therefore, the nets are their nets. These are the tools of, of their trade. These guys are really heavily invested in this job. The nets are ripped up because they've been out using them and they're mending them so that they can go out and use them again. Clearly, everything about these people is focused on the single task of getting fish. They're all about the fish, aren't they? Their identity is closely bound up with what they do. What they do characterizes who they are. So with all of that literal fishing, actual fishing for actual fish in mind, the metaphorical fishing of verse 17 starts to make more sense. Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. Now don't get hung up on on the the sexist language. Uh, Scripture frequently uses male images and female images to talk about all sorts of people. So this, this irritating fishes of men phrase is going to be as annoying for women here as it is for me constantly to be referred to as the bride of Christ. I don't particularly like that, even though I'm wearing a dress. It's just, it's just scriptural idiom, all right? So, you know, we can live with this. When you see that word men, just, just think people, will you, for the sake of uh, this sermon. And Jesus says... Uh, Just as you currently go around fishing for fish, which is what you do and what characterizes who you are, because you are fishermen, soon you will start going out fishing for people. The, uh, The pastor, Ed Young, from Fellowship Church in Texas, says in a whole sermon series called Fish, he says, followers fish. It is what they do. Christians take their identity from from what they do, just as these fishermen take their identity from what they do. Christians are supposed to fish. If you do follow Jesus, you will fish for people. You will go fishing for folk, and this will characterize everything about you. Now, this idea of, of human fishing, a bit weird, I mean, you know, I admit, strange as it sounds to go fishing for, for people, it really, actually, we're rather used to these metaphors. We use fish metaphors perhaps a little bit more uh, frequently than we realize. If we've been conned, and I love this phrase, I learned it here, we might say it was a bait and switch, or that we fell for some scheme, hook, line, and sinker. Uh, if someone is dithering about, we might tell them, look, we've had enough of this, just fish or cut bait. Um, if you have a breakup with, with somebody... Um, someone might console you, ham-fistedly, I admit, with the phrase, never mind, there's plenty more fish in the sea. And if you stick with that person, and it's a horrible mistake, and you end up regretting it, uh, you might even end up calling your beloved spouse of your youth uh, an old trout. (laughs) I don't commend it, I'm just reporting what I've seen. (laughs) So um, many, many, many cultures use fish for just all sorts of of stuff, all sorts of illustrations, all sorts of of fish stories that illustrate human situations. And uh, this could be what Jesus is doing here. 
looking around a literal fishing village saying, I'm going to talk about fish because they'll get this, and using fishing idiom because everybody uses fishing idiom and thinking they'll get this. But this phrase, fishers of men, it also sits in a very specific Old Testament context. There is, woven through the pages of the Old Testament, a a sort of fishy motif that uh, comes up over and over again, and it's to do with something. It has real meaning. Uh, prophetically, Jesus is fulfilling something significant that is promised in the Old Testament. And the minute he starts talking about fishing for people, they, they get it. They start to think about those passages. Amos, chapter 2, verse 4 in the Old Testament, warns God's people. God's people says this, The days are coming upon you when they shall take you away with fish hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks. Someone evil is fishing around, warns the prophet Amos, stalking the pond, looking to snatch out of it these people, symbolically fish, taking them away to be destroyed. This image of fishing in the Old Testament is is connected to the idea of judgment, a warning that judgment day is coming, a warning that an end is coming, the end of the world is nigh, and there is someone evil out there fishing around trying to drag you out to your destruction. Habakkuk, or Habakkuk, as Tracy says it, in chapter 1, verse 14, goes even further, and it says this, God makes humankind like the fish of the sea. So there's your, there's your algebra. Fish equals people. That's Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 14. And it goes on and says this, But the enemy brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net, and he gathers them in his dragnet. Three modes of fishing there to describe how he mercilessly kills the nations. The enemy is is stalking the pond and and looking to drag people out. The, The Old Testament consistently describes the people as being like the fish of the sea and the rivers and the ponds and the lakes and says a time is coming when they will all be dragged out and exposed and led to their destruction. And the the concept of fishing is thus heavily bound up with the concept of judgment and the end of the world. Well, that doesn't sound like good news. And then in Ezekiel, chapter 29, verse 4, God introduces the concept of an alternative ending, like a choose-your-own-adventure book. There's this other way. It turns out there is a rival fisherman at work. God says, I, this is God speaking of himself, I will draw you up out of the midst of your streams. God will go fishing. Uh, God will gently go fishing for his people, not with the brutality of a hook, but just the tenderness of his own hands. It's actually possible to catch a fish just by tickling it. Did you know that? You can tickle a trout and lull it into a sort of sense of, of, of calmness and just fish it out with your hands. God gently will bring some out. The really, really cool thing is that Jeremiah, and maybe you caught it in the first reading that, that Jane read there from Jeremiah, God says that he won't do the actual fishing himself with his own hands, but rather he will use ours. Jeremiah 16 says, God speaking again, behold, take note, look, I am sending for many fishers, declares the Lord, and they shall catch them. 
In God's design, God wishes to enlist you into a sort of great flotilla of fishermen and fishermen women to go out and save the lost. That is God's plan. He's calling you to go out and fish. He's been promising this for years. And into all of that context, literal fishing village, the sort of idiom of fishing language and stories, and that enormously significant apocalyptic prophetic motif of the Old Testament, Jesus speaks. He says, if you have repented and you have believed, you have been fished out of a shrinking, drying pond, fished out of death. You have been fished into the kingdom of God gently. And if you have been fished, then it is time now to go fishing yourself. That's the context into which Jesus speaks. And maybe that seems a bit difficult. Maybe you're saying, well, I don't know how to fish. I don't know what to do. I've never done it before. Well, there's more good news in verse 17. Jesus says, follow me. And I will make you become fishers of men. The good news of the good news of the good news of the good news is that it's not down to you to figure out how to do this thing. Even the ability to fish is something that by grace God offers to every single one of us. We don't have to be any good at this. We can be completely rubbish at fishing and still be invited to go and do it. To be an evangelist, to be a sharer of the good news, a proclaimer of the euangelion, the evangel. To be like John as we saw in week one, to be like Christ as we saw in week two. All we need to do is turn to Christ and follow him. They used to fish for fish. That's what they did with great skill. They would bring in all of these fish. They weren't born with that skill. They learned it. The the absolutely amazing thing is that sometimes in the Bible you read of these skilled fishermen that they're actually even rubbish at fishing. Quite frequently they can't get any fish and Jesus has to give them fish, multiply fish, or, or give them more fish than they could find for themselves. These actual trained fishermen can't even fish for fish. So don't think that it's down to them now that they've been given the job of an evangelist that they've never done before. Don't think it's down to them to suddenly have all of the skills of some great big shiny-toothed televangelist. This is all about Christ. If he can make a meal, a miraculous catch of fish, then how much more can he do for people? So what we need to do Jesus says, is follow him. If you follow him, he'll transform you and he will make you into something that you once were not. He will make it work. And so right now, as you hear this gospel imperative to go out and start attracting people to Christ, this is a command of Christ. Right now, in this moment, you might only have the trousers or the the, the leggings or the jeggings or whatever it is people are wearing now. You might only have a very gentle... I know Tom's not wearing them, but you know... So they're wearing them up there, mate, I tell you. <laughs> or, or a pair of gently used, you know, running shoes. Maybe that's all you've got. Jesus will give you the body. This is the best thing. That actually, it turns out that, that wearing a, a, a pair of, of tightly fitting trousers does make you fit. It's amazing. Christ gives you all of the things that you need to go out fishing. 
Now, it's a, a quirk of the language that sometimes Mark uses this word immediately, which you see here, uh, as a transition between sentences. That when, when they wrote, they didn't have paragraphs and numbers and spacing and highlights and different colors like, like we have. It was just a wall of text. They didn't even have spaces between any of the letters or words. Uh, and so Mark uses the word immediately, almost like a page break, to say new subject. And so he uses this word a lot, but immediately they did this, immediately they did that. But I, I think the second reason he uses the word is it gives us a sense of the, the, the urgency of this work, the immediacy of their reaction testifies to the immediacy of the calling. The kingdom is at hand. The end is nigh. There is no time to waste. This afternoon, we go out and we fish. When the uh, children were much younger, we had a fishing game. I know that many of you had the fishing game. Little plastic fish with mouths that go like this and little bits of metal inside of them. I think you gave us your old fishing game. That's why you're smiling. Yeah, we got it from you. And the fish, they're on this sort of turntable. And uh, it's clockwork or battery if you've got the new version. The fish are all in little holes. You twist the thing and the turntable starts spinning. The fish's mouths go like this. And the whole lot goes around and around and around like that. And uh, all the children and one adult has a fishing rod. (laughs) Just one for some reason. And... um, a string and a magnet on the thing. And before the game stops and the table stops spinning, you have to fish out as many fish as you can with their mouths going open and closed like this. And the winner is the one at the end with the most fish in their pile. And for some reason, the children always won by one fish. No one can say why. It's an urgent task to get as many as you can before the game ends. And it's a wonderful image for our job as fishers of men. A wonderful image before Christ returns to dedicate ourselves to the single task of rescuing as many as possible such that we can say that's what we are about and that task characterizes who we are. We are fishers of people. And so grasping this gospel imperative to become sharers of the good news and fishers of men, verse 18 simply says immediately, there's that word, They left their nets and followed him. Verse 20, immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. They just, both sets, drop what they're doing and follow him. Not only did they know nothing about evangelism at all, nothing at all, they were heavily invested in their old lives They had all this equipment, and they worked with their families, and they had all of this skill, and a network of friends, and and all of those things. This is not an easy change that they're making here immediately, but there's no time to waste. If you're going to become a a fisher of, of people, you may well be called to leave everything behind immediately, or at least be prepared to do it. The urgency... Uh, of this task is primary in Mark's gospel. Everything else besides fishing for the lost is secondary. My favorite bishop, Bishop J.C. Ryle, and I I know that sometimes our actual bishop, my boss, worships here. So he's my second favorite bishop. He's still very high on the list. 
nearly joint favourite. Uh, Bishop J.C. Ryle, Bishop of Liverpool, so that counts for something, playing Manchester United today, and they're going to win. Bishop J.C. Ryle said, one single soul... Let's get to the quote, shall we? Bishop J.C. Ryle said... Oh, his diocese was such a mess. He got that. No one, I think, even the ministers even had a Bible. Imagine that, 1880. The ministers had never thought to peel one open and see what might be inside. <laughs> Bishop J.C. Ryle, like, when he'd torn all his hair out, he went on a trip around the Diocese of Liverpool saying, hey, guys, let's read this thing. And uh, he said this, one single soul saved shall outlive and outweigh all the kingdoms of the world. Keep that quote in my office on the wall, imposed on the blueprint of this very building, just to, just to give me some sense of perspective, one single soul saved shall outlive and outweigh all the kingdoms of the world. Keep it there to stop me from getting precious about the wrong thing, about getting distracted with the wrong thing, or getting you know, concerned about having my own way or my own agenda. No, 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 no. The, the, the priority is the salvation of souls. Everything else is secondary, said that bishop. What would you do for a soul? What would you give up for a life? Jesus gave up his own. If one person converted to Christ, Christ would yet have gone to the cross for you. And now Jesus calls us to follow him. And at this point, he says, you know, come and do it now. And at this point, someone will stand up and they'll say, well, let's hang on a minute. This is not fair. This is not realistic. You can't just drop everything now and immediately go out and make evangelism your priority. Easy for them. They had very simple lives and they were manual laborers. And Christ is a rabbi. This is a sort of promotion. Easy for them to trade this grim job for some promotion. Easy for them to drop a simple life for another simple life. I've got far too much going on in my life for me just to drop it all and make evangelism number one. You can't put Jesus uh, before jobs and homes and families. It's not responsible. It's not practical. I've got mortgages and I have car payments and I've got kids in, in university and school and, and grandkids and, and you know, things to do and you know, multiple investments. I, I can't just, just drop it all for Christ. cannot water this down for you, can't make it say something other than what it says, that, that would not be a sermon if I just said, hey, here's your get-out clause. That, that wouldn't be a sermon at all. It, it just says what it says. There's no fancy point. I don't know. Read it. If you like it, do it. That's a plain word, isn't it? Matthew. Uh, Mark, sorry, Mark 8.34, almost making that bit of uncomfortableness we're all feeling now worse. All right, let's make it worse. Mark 8.34, Jesus amplifies this statement, makes it harder. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. How about not only do you give up all that stuff, but you take in exchange for all of that stuff a cross? Unbelievable. If you're going to follow Jesus on the narrow path of discipleship, you may well find as you follow him that your journey ends up at the same place that his did on a cross. Indeed, our journey begins at the cross. It characterizes who we are. That's why they call us Christians. Mark 10, 29. Don't beat yourself up 
if you feel that this is a new teaching and you've not really got it right this, this far, don't worry about that. Peter, the rock on whom the church is built, in Mark 10, only then starts to grasp that this is a real thing. Peter began to say to Jesus, it says here, only now after months, if not years, of discipleship is the penny starting to drop. He says, see, Jesus, we've left everything and followed you. And Jesus said to him, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, the good news, to go fishing. No one who's dropped everything to go on a fishing trip who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands. When one goes out on this theological fishing trip, one gains a new home and a new family. Wonderful news. When uh, we left our previous church and and these people that we love so much, we, we wept. We just cried. I was trying to say the final blessing at the end of the the last service and the steps i couldn't even say the words i was crying in front of everybody and um the crazy thing is that that four or five years before then we 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 hadn't even met any of them didn't know them and over the course of that that time they'd become so precious to us that leaving them just hurt and now we feel like that about you i really hope they're not listening but Guys in Red Hill, I kind of prefer this church. <laughs> Whoa! Whatever. I've got to spend eternity with you. I didn't really say that. Take it back. But I love it here, right? I love you. This is fun. I like it. I like it here. I would join this church even if they didn't pay me. Probably wouldn't work for it, but I'd, I'd at least, you know, join. I like it. I, I, I love you. And, and we feel, oh, every single person on the staff team feels like this. We're all really frustrated that we can't do more. All of us, just on the staff reviews, every single person's working hard. Uh, they, they, they wish, some of them, that they could just clone themselves so that they could do more work. Um, when, when we go to, to hospital, um, we, we sometimes cry in the car on the way there. We often cry in the room and on the way home. When, when you grieve, when you've lost someone, we we grieve with you. you you've seen us, some of you, um, around your tables, grieving with you. And, and we feel as though you were our family. And we've wept tears of joy this year as, as, as two people have knelt uh, at that communion rail there and given their life to Christ Jesus in tears. We've wept with you as well at that conversion moment as someone has crossed from death to life. Just wept like a, like a crazy person. Uh, I've wept in my office. People have come in to talk about the most mundane things. Ended up sharing a testimony that was so moving that I've had to get tissues and dry my eyes at the sheer glory. I can't wait for you to hear what I heard this week. Uh, Maybe later on uh, in in the new year, you'll you'll hear what I heard this week from from someone. It's an awesome story. And I I just, I I love you and I love your stories and I love what's going on. And I want to tell you now that the worst thing the absolute pits is when one of you seems to be getting it and you slide away. That is the lowest of the low. When it looks like you're getting it and then you get busy with something else. It's so distressing. When you turn the gospel imperative on its head and you get busy 
with, with other things in life, and you say to your family and to your friends and to your job, look, I left Jesus for you. I just feel appalling. And I know that the other staff feel the same. I've left the gospel for you, they say. And there's nothing you can say back. Uh, you've probably all seen one of those YouTube videos, have you not? Second only to car crashes, as, as my favorite genre on YouTube. It is when some proud angler holds up their prize catch with great pomposity before the camera, as if to say, you know, look what I have achieved. And at the very moment they hold this gigantic fish, the fish that looked like it had died suddenly opens its mouth and with a lurch and a flip, slaps the bloke in the face and jumps back into the stream and swims away. It's the worst thing in fishing, isn't it? For anyone that likes to fish, the worst fishing story is the one that got away. The tragedy of this theological catch and release that we do as a church is that if you pluck a fish up out of the water, it gasps, it flaps around a bit, and then it dies. But if you pluck a person up out of the depths of their sin and they die to that sin, next they come alive. Having died, we are born again in Christ, a new beginning. When we are fished, we come alive by Jesus Christ. It is the absolute opposite of the way that ordinary fishing works. And of course, we know this, don't we? That fish like to get back in the water. Before they're dead, they want with everything they are in their little fish brain to get back into the water because it feels safe in the water. It feels safe where they were before. It feels familiar. Only in the kingdom of God can something as crazy as dying be good news. Only, only can anyone as crazy as a Christian think that death is a good thing because it's redeemed by Christ Jesus and turned into life. And only in the kingdom of God can a fish become a fisher. What a remarkable thing that God wants to use fish to go fishing. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. Let's pray. Lord God, I pray that uh, this would be a church that bulges with fishing stories that, that we'd be invigorated to go out and share the good news. Father, we thank you that, that we've received that good news, not of judgment, not of, of, of deeds and doing the right thing, but of freedom, that we were as hopeless as a fish and you pulled us out against our will, saved us and then transformed us and turned us uh, into fishermen and, 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 and uh, fishers of men and women. God, please continue to be gentle with us. Would we be so overwhelmed with your grace that we turn from what we've done and turn to you and receive that free gift of eternal life that is found in you alone. And as we are overwhelmed by the, the outrageousness of your grace, would we find contagiousness of sharing it? In the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.